Well, I, um, as you know, we're working on um, the Lord's Prayer, and one of the things that we need to be reminded of is that we're, we're working on the Lord's Prayer with respect to the background of the Lord's Prayer. Where did it come from? Why, when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray, like John taught his disciples, why did he teach them this prayer over here in Matthew chapter 6 and over in, in Luke 11? Why did he use the words that he used? You know, and in, you know, of course, I couldn't even begin to tell you the volume of literature that's been written about the Lord's Prayer. But it comes at a juncture in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. And it obviously has great import for all of us, not just the disciples. So when he gave them these words, he said, after this manner, which is emphatic. Now, for those of you that don't know, when it's emphatic, that means when you're reading a sentence in the Greek, something that's put at the beginning of the sentence or something that's at the very end is in an emphatic position. That means there's an emphasis put on it. So it might say something like this, when he says, after this manner, therefore pray ye, um, and the word ye is emphatic also. So it would say something like this, literally, after this manner, you and ye is all of you, therefore pray. But it wouldn't make a lot of sense for us in English uh, sometimes to say it that way. So we rearrange the words and put them in a structure that you know makes more that flows and makes more sense to us but when it's emphatic that means we need to pay attention to it and it wasn't just any prayer so when he said our father which art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Not all of the phrases here have a direct Old Testament reference, although, well, I don't know if I should say it exactly that strongly, but not maybe as strongly as we're going to be looking at in the phrases, our Father, and uh, hallowed be thy name, and thy kingdom come, and so on. So I want, by way of reminder, to set the tone for this, if by going back to Exodus chapter 4, and as... uh, We mentioned this last week, and by way of reminder, in verses 22 and 23, 
Of course, you're in the, we're in the early part of the book of Exodus, and God is preparing to bring his people out of Egypt. And he says in verse 22, And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. Now that's, that's a really a, a climactic statement when you think about it, because here God is telling Moses how he's to address himself before Pharaoh and begin this process of redeeming his people from bondage, from slavery in Egypt. And please don't forget, as we mentioned also, that all the time they were in Egypt, they were God's people. They simply had become enslaved. Enslaved in a world system of which there was no way to escape unless God would deliver them. So in verse 23, he says, And I say unto thee, Let my son go. So trying to imagine Israel as a a group of people, a body of people in which God was addressing them before Pharaoh and calling them collectively, my son. Well, immediately that would conjure up in your image a father. You couldn't have a son without having a father. And so this put a picture in the mind of Israel, all Israel, that God was their father. Even though here he's addressing Pharaoh and telling Pharaoh, let my son go. But he says, Israel is my son. Now, um, from there, let's go to, um, well, probably should try to keep your finger in Matthew 6. We'll refer to that from time to time. Um, in, in verse 9, when he says, our father, he also says, which art in heaven. That would be significant also. Significant in this sense, if we look back at Isaiah chapter 63. Now this is a passage that we we looked at last week, and I want to return to it because I didn't touch on everything that's there. So Isaiah 63... And last week we looked at verses 11, or I read them, 11 through 17. And we were particularly focusing on verse 16, where he says, Doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledgest not. Thou, O Lord, art our father, our redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. But in verse 15, I want us to see that little phrase, look down from heaven, he says, and notice that this is a prayer. This is a prayer, just like 
Matthew chapter 6 is a prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And in prayer, he says, look down from heaven and behold. Or look down from heaven and see. Behold is, a, is, is a, another form of a word that's translated see, just like in the New Testament. When you see the word behold, 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 it comes from a word that means look. See this. And here he's doing the same thing. Look down from heaven and behold from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory. Where is thy zeal and thy strength, the sounding of thy bowels and of thy mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Are you holding back, Lord? I want us to look at verse 17. O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways and hardened our heart from thy fear? Return for thy servant's sake the tribes of thine inheritance. What's he telling us? What, what, what's Isaiah praying for here? What is he confessing before the Lord and seeking after? Well, again, think back to the Exodus. Think back to the imagery. God as father to Israel redeemed them and delivered them, brought them out into the wilderness where they experienced their first taste of freedom in over in 400 years. And now he's bringing them up to his promised land to enter in and enjoy all the blessings that a father would bestow on a son. Kind of reminds you of Luke 15, doesn't it? When the prodigal son returned to the father and the blessings he gave. But here in the prayer, he's saying, return. Return for thy slaves' sake, the word servants, and the tribes of thine inheritance. In other words, Israel had fallen from the Lord. They had gotten away and wandered off into idolatry. They had forsaken the Lord and were not near to him. And, of course, even had gone into exile and Babylon. And the prophet's prayer here, then, is a prayer, Lord, return and deliver us again. Do what you did when you brought our people out of Egypt. Do what you did in the Exodus. That's why some people refer to Passages like this as a plea, as a looking forward to God's promise of a new exodus. To bring God's people out of exile and into a renewed relationship with him. Now, of course, this is only one passage. And we know that there are many other promises and passages uh, containing promises in which the Lord has told us that he will, in fact, do that very thing.
And not only will he do that in bringing them back, but he will bring his king, his Messiah, to establish his kingdom and place his people under their authority, under his authority, under his rule, where they will enjoy the blessings of Messiah and never again have to go through what they've gone through from the first exodus unto the one that's yet to come in the future. Now, um, from there, um, Isaiah 55, just turn back a few couple pages. <clears throat> One distinction that can be made between this old exodus, which was just the nation of Israel, whom God called his son, and this new exodus, which is yet to come, is the inclusion of Gentiles in this invitation. So as we read verse 55, he says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat, yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. <laughs> well, you, th you talk about putting the word sale up on a, on a store. <laughs> it's free. Without price. We ought to be running to such an invitation. Verse 2 says, Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfies not? Hearkeneth diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Well, that's an encouraging word, isn't it? <laughs> Don't hurt to be a little fat, I guess. But notice what he's, notice what he's telling us. Why are we wasting our time on that which does not profit or benefit? We get too wrapped up in the things of this life and the things of this world to no benefit at all. And so was Israel, by the way. A lot of Israel was so wrapped up in the things of the world that they didn't even leave Babylon and did not come back to Jerusalem and to the land of Israel. They just stayed where they were. In verse 3, he says, Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. You Gentiles. We'll see this in just a second. Even the sure mercies of David. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and a commander to the people. Look over in chapter 56 and look at verses 6 and 7. Over here, he says, also, now by the way, these are, this whole chapter deals with uh, millennial blessings, things that will occur during the millennium 
that will be extended even to the Gentiles. And particularly, he says in verses 6 and 7, also the sons of the stranger, that is the Gentiles, that join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain. Now we just saw recently this euphemism of a holy mountain stands for everything that God was going to do in the land of Israel and particularly in the city of Jerusalem and the restoration of his God's people and who would be allowed to reside there with him. And we looked at several passages. We've done them more than once, probably several times since I've been here. Places like Psalm 15 and Psalm 24. And I think it's Proverbs 23. And I, I mean, there's just like passage after passage after passage in the Old Testament that tell us what the conditions are for God accepting us into his holy hill or his holy mountain, which, by the way, it's the same Hebrew word, translated hill one time, mountain another time. And it has to do with reflecting the character of God himself. Or, as we would say it, doing righteousness. It's what the scripture says. Doing what is right. Or as one well-known preacher said, do right till the stars fall. (laughs) And to do right and to do those things, as he's telling the Gentiles here to do in verses 6 and 7, he says, even them will I bring to my holy mountain. So when he says, our Father, which art in heaven, it would evoke in the mind of a Jew who made the connection of this prayer and these prayers, actually I should say, there's more than one, concerning God restoring his people, it was always in connection with the old Exodus. In other words, when they prayed, and they prayed regarding this this old Exodus, the one we're familiar with in the book of Exodus, it was there that they distinctly called God our Father. And those are the two that we looked at in particular last week. Isaiah 63 and and um, Jeremiah um, uh, 3. Now, I want to... I got a passage marked over here somewhere that I want to look at. Someplace. Yeah, right here. Um, 1 Chronicles 29...
So go back to 1 Chronicles 29 and verses 10 to 13. In what should be a, a familiar passage, you know, this David is right near the end of his life. Solomon is about ready to uh, take his place and assume the throne or send to the throne. And um, in verse 10, he says, Wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation. Now notice we're entering into a prayer again. David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever, or from age even unto age. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all, and in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. Now, you can see that there are a number of allusions here to the Lord's Prayer in the language that David uses. I mean, for one, um, he calls God our Father. We noted that one last week. But in verse 11, he says, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory. We recognize that from the Lord's Prayer, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Reflective language. From David himself. I don't think there would be any doubt whatsoever that when any Jew heard this, let alone the disciples of Jesus, heard such words that any who was looking for that ultimate and final deliverance of God into this ultimate promised land that there would be a final deliverance of God setting them free from all their enemies and their sins and establishing them in freedom under the Lord's rule. And not just under the Lord's rule, but under the rule of the Lord's Messiah. Something that Israel has longed for for centuries. And then you see that other phrase, which we've already alluded to again in verse 11. He says, Thine is the kingdom, O Lord. Thine is the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 6, in verse 13, we have an allusion to that same, that same phrase, that same kind of thought. Um, 
if I can get back there, I told you to put your finger there and then I let mine go. Where he says, okay, there we go. Thy kingdom come. Thine is the kingdom. Thy kingdom come, Jesus said. And he told his disciples to pray this way. Well, when he was telling them to pray for thy kingdom to come, he was telling them to pray for that future messianic rule that would come over the earth. I don't think that's anything different than what Jesus or uh, David was praying when he referenced thine is, thine is the kingdom, O Lord. Israel still was in need of a king. They were still in need, even in David's day, of a king who would bring that ultimate and final deliverance to them in the promised land. They hadn't experienced it yet. Though they had been in the promised land, though they had enjoyed multiple blessings from God, having been there for a few hundred years at this point, They had been captivated by their own sins and falling into idolatry and worshiping gods of wood and stone, forsaking the Sabbath, as we read earlier, which really, really upset the Lord. The Sabbath was important to him. That seventh day. It pictured something that you and I need to think about and look forward to. That seventh day of rest when he will ultimately come and fulfill all these promises for once and all, and it will be over, permanent. There will be no more captivation to sin and idolatry. There will be a full and complete and final deliverance. And even now, when Paul says that we have been translated into the kingdom of the son of his love, he has begun the process. It's at work in us right now. And that's why he's calling us to live as his people. And prepare ourselves for entrance into that kingdom. It's no different, really, folks, than what John the Baptist was doing in his day when he came preaching to Israel and preaching a baptism of repentance. He was telling them, look, repent. Straighten your lives out. And get ready for this kingdom. Prepare yourselves for this Messiah, and live like it. Now, I want to go to, I'm getting off track just a tad bit. Um, You know, when we made remarks earlier about one of the things that was um, a, a really big image in the mind of a Jew, and we looked at last week, a few of those passages, and I, I started off today by looking at Exodus chapter four, where he said, to Israel, to Pharaoh, 
he says to Pharaoh, Israel is my son. Well, if you turn back with me to John chapter 1, to that very, very familiar passage that we know so well, John chapter 1, verse 12, I hope that this will evoke in your mind, along with other passages, other verses in the New Testament, that talk of us as being sons of God. And I don't know if I want to say it quite this way, but I guess I'm going to. And legitimizing our our place as calling God our Father. And that's because we are sons. In verse 12, John chapter 1, verse 12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Power, authority, to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. If you became a son of God by believing on his name, then who did God become to you in your relationship to him? He became your father. It's not just, you know, in other words, I'm trying to say it's not the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Not just anybody can address God and call him father. It is only those who recognize his son and receive him and acknowledge who he is by believing on his name that have this privilege of understanding God as father. And of course, that extends even further when we think of passages like um, Romans chapter 8. And if you want to turn over there, in Romans chapter 8, an awesome chapter here. It's one of those you like to park in and just you could stay here for a long time concerning all that, that, that is stated. But one of the things he refers to here is... Our walk with God, our walk with the Lord, and and the relationship that we have to him with regard to his spirit. And he says in verse, um, verse 12, he says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. 
But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now, here in this passage, I think it's very interesting. Um, this little phrase, as many as. I like... Uh, Govet gave an interesting thought on that. He says, that is a word of limitation. As many as. That's not everybody, is it? As many as are led by the Spirit. And what does he mean, led by the Spirit? Well, Vert chapter 6 and chapter 7 and the first part of chapter 8 all have to do with a Christian's walk. What we call, you know, in Bible terms, sanctification. That ongoing setting apart of our lives in a daily fashion for the Lord in humble obedience to Him. And so he says, as many as are led by the Spirit. That is, they are led by him in this realm of, or this sphere of, sanctification. As many as are led by him, the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now, does that mean that John 1.12 is a little mixed up? When he says, as many as received him, to them gave he power or authority to become the sons of God? I don't think so. I think that he's saying to us that, let's just say here, everybody in this room is a believer. Everybody has received Christ. Everybody has uh, been beneficiaries of this knowledge that if we believe on the Lord Jesus, we become a son of God. But you see here, he's talking about something down the road. He's talking about sanctification. And he's talking about a relationship in which certain ones act like they're sons of God. It's like that you would say in, in a... In a we could use an illustration of, of, of a family. Do not we often say, you know, out of X number of children that might be in a family, you know, so-and-so's the black sheep? Now, what do we mean by that? We mean they have stepped out of the bounds of the way in which they were brought up. And they don't walk accordingly. And that's what Paul is referring to here when he says, as many as are led by the Spirit. These, in other words, not the black sheep, but these, the rest of the kids in the family, these are the true sons. They are sons indeed. Sons and daughters, if you will. They're the real ones. And so he's saying here the same thing. 
And not only that, then, just skipping over, well, in my Bible, I go over to the next column uh, in... I lost my verse. Where's the one that says, um, oh, here we go. Yeah. Verse 19. He says, for the earnest expectation of the creature waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. Which sons of God? All of them? Or in context, the ones spoken of here in verse 14. The ones who are walking in obedience to the Lord. I think that's exactly who he's speaking of. And the reason, one of the reasons at least I would say that I would feel that way is if, you know, when you go back to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10, another passage that speaks about sons. And he's talking here about the greater son, Jesus, who he says in verse 9, was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him, or it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory, or some translate that word bringing as leading, and it is translated that way elsewhere, to make many, uh, excuse me, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. His goal, to bring many sons unto glory. Which sons are these? Is it all the sons? Or is it the sons indeed? Is it the sons who are doing as he marked us out in the Old Testament that he would accept into his holy hill in Psalm 15 or in Psalm 24? or in numerous other passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and other passages in the Psalms and Proverbs that speak explicitly to to this very thing. So when he said, pray like this, pray in this manner, our Father, which art in heaven, This evoked all kinds of imagery for a Jew. Not just the disciples. And this imagery would throw them back to that day in in centuries past when God brought his people out of Egypt and called them my son. And when David would say, doubtless, you are our father. There is a connection there. 
We're going to see more of that connection as we look at a couple of other phrases in the next couple of weeks that I trust will cement in our minds how sure and how wonderful God has made this promise that he is going to restore Israel to her place in the promised land and to those Gentiles who cling to him and serve him. And, and in chapter, uh, John 1.12, believe in his son, receive him, and believe on his name. He's going to reserve a place for them. And when we pray, that's what we need to be praying for. That's what we need to pray about. We need to pray with that in mind. And with that in mind, let's pray. (laughs) Oh God, our Father, we do lift our hearts in humility and gratefulness and full gratitude, Father, that you look down from heaven upon us and you had mercy upon us. You brought us the good news of the gospel and we believed. Oh, how I pray that in our belief that we would understand the fullness of that belief and the joys and the glories that are yet to come because of what we believe about your son. We long for that day, Father, and we do pray, thy kingdom come. We want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's our heart's desire, Father, that we would live under such a righteous king as Jesus. Because to live under his rule means righteousness and peace. It means abundance, no hunger, no thirst, no pain. And it means a day of glory for our Savior. Help us, O God, to comprehend those thoughts and let us live in such fashion that we can hear you say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, and know with a certainty that you've included us in your kingdom. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.